It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. So it feels like the past couple of weeks, all we have been saying to clients and other folks is like, we're just waiting for the Supreme Court arguments. And those were yesterday. Yeah, we're recording the podcast on Thursday morning. Just like we do every other week. Well, not every other week. Sometimes we record on Wednesday night. But yeah, so Supreme Court hearing was yesterday. And I have to tell you, I was asking you a lot of questions about the Supreme Court process. I mean, it really wasn't an episode of Matlock or Perry Mason here, right? That was pretty cut and dry. We look up and they've moved on to another case. Yeah, both you said that to me, and then I had a friend who said she turned it on for some entertainment. She was like, I don't know what they're talking about. I'm like, yeah, the case is over. Yeah, it was another guy talking about <laughs> something else. And I, I remember asking you, do you even know what he's talking about? Apparently, they were on another case. But the Supreme Court heard arguments from both sides of the redistricting case. Before we get into the arguments, can you just kind of give us a quick the process of the Supreme Court, because it was different than what we saw at the lower court level. Right. So your lower courts are your fact finders. And if you think of it that way, your lower courts are the courts that listen to the details. By the time you get to that Supreme Court level, they expect all of those details to be in the briefs that you've submitted to the court prior to that hearing. And really, your oral argument is about your briefs. And if the justices have questions on your briefs, they ask you those questions. You have an allotted amount of time to answer those and say anything else you want to say. I heard a lot of questions yesterday from Chief Justice Paul Newby. Justice Sam Irvin asked some questions. Justice Earls and Justice Morgan also asked a fair amount of questions during the hearing. So the Carolina Journal wrote a wrap-up piece yesterday. That's a conservative article over at the John Locke Foundation. It seemed to indicate in that article that they felt that the justices were really showing their hands and so kind of bracing for the courts to say uh, that political gerrymandering is not allowed under the Constitution. And it now, I think the expectation out there is that there is going to be a negative ruling for the defendants being the General Assembly. It just, how do they word this decision and what does it mean as far as are we going to be redrawing districts at the General Assembly level or are we going to have a special master? So what I would say is the case is ultimately going to have to decide what that political gerrymandering threshold is because there is not a threshold for that how much is too much and how much is enough and where the court decides to draw that line if they do will set us up in the future can you boil down for me exactly what the case was yesterday from the plaintiff's perspective and then what the defense said just kind of crystallize it in very brief layman's terms, because despite the fact that we seem to have a lot of North Carolina constitutional scholars on Twitter this past week, 
I was a little, it seemed like a lot of political speak back and forth. And I'm not saying that you're a constitutional scholar. I was about to say, I am not a, but I did take advanced North Carolina constitutional law. I think you're (laughs) probably. And there were like seven other people in my class, so. (laughs) Well, apparently uh, hundreds of Twitter followers also took that class with you. (laughs) But uh, can you kind of help us boil it down? So the plaintiffs aren't saying that it has to be equal proportions of Republicans and Democrats. That's not what they're saying. They're saying that all voters should get a chance, and they feel that these maps dilute some voters. And because of that, it's unconstitutional that these voters will not have their voices heard. So that's the plaintiff's argument. And when you say those certain voters were, seemed to be the argument was mainly black voters. That's right. And the plaintiffs did argue that this would affect more black legislators as well. So that is in the background of this entire argument. And the defense's response to that was? So the defendants are saying, hey, just like the lower court said, there is not a standard for political gerrymandering. And we we went through the Stevenson case. We followed the rules up to this point. Like, what is good enough for y'all? And so those are the two sides. So I'm listening to the case yesterday. <laughs> and it's one of those things where I'm listening to the plaintiffs and the defense. I'm listening to the justices. And I go, well, that's a good point. Well, that's a good point, too. That's a really good question. Where is it in the Constitution? It seems to me, again, layman. Not a not an attorney. That this is a lot of gray on both sides, right? Definitely. And so the decision, there is no smoking gun. There is no final moment where the truth just comes out like in the movies, right? Like in Legally Blonde. <laughs> right, like in Legally Blonde. Yes, like Legally Blonde. And so maybe the point is, yeah, this really does come down to politics at the end of the day. There are four Democratic justices, there are three Republican justices, and that's what's going to happen. We will see. When do you think we'll have a decision? The only timeline that we have is that we know that it needs to be soon because of the primaries. So I would expect something in the next, I don't know, 10 days would be on the longer end and any time before that could happen. This week, we saw a new legislator take the oath of office in one of the skeleton sessions over in the North Carolina House. Saw some nice pictures of the new representative, Caleb Ruto. Ruto or Rudow. We have to meet him. We have to figure this out. Yeah. And he, we saw some pictures of the new representative from Buncombe County, Caleb Ruto, Rudow. He is filling the seat of Representative Susan Fisher. Yeah, Representative Fisher, a Democrat. She resigned her seat effective January 31st. Representative Rudow was selected by the Democratic Executive Committee in that district. That's all state law. And the governor made the appointment to the General Assembly. I saw a nice post on Facebook by Deputy Chief of Staff Dan Gurley. He's the Deputy Chief of Staff to Speaker Tim Moore. And 
Representative Robert Reeves, Democratic leader, swore him in. And then Representative Rodale made some comments from the well of the House. And he's apparently had some family and friends who came in for this skeleton session. And, you know, a skeleton session means there's probably about four or five legislators in the audience. But we certainly welcome him to the General Assembly and look forward to working with him. You know, so last week we talked about some rumors going around General Assembly. North Carolina politics. You and I are driving to Wilmington. We should make this a segment too. The rumor mill. (laughs) (laughs) Unsubstantiated rumors. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're driving to Wilmington and the telephone rings and we can't say who was calling. They asked to be anonymous, but they were hearing a rumor about who's running for governor in 2024 on the Republican side. They heard that state treasurer Dale Falwell was running for governor. So, of course, Brian being Brian is like, I'm going to call him and ask him. So picked up the phone and called the treasurer. Yeah, and the treasurer did not deny it. Not at all. Said something about some people are more interested in being governor, but he's more interested in governing and he's busy protecting the North Carolina taxpayer over at the treasurer's office. And I said, but are you running for governor? And he said, when am I coming on your podcast? <laughs> and <laughs> So he's probably going to make the announcement here. We are a trusted news source. Thanks for asking. That's right. That's right. So we're just, you know, we're not saying that these rumors are true. We're just saying these rumors exist. That's what we're saying. And so Del Falwell for governor... Wow, that could be a good race between him and Mark Robinson. Throw in Tom Tillis. That's interesting. Props galore. Throw in Greg Murphy, and we got us a a, a barn burner. It'll be something. So you have been itching to talk about the intricacies of this lawsuit against Congressman Madison Cawthorn. I am so intrigued by Representative or Congressman Madison Cawthorn. He is certainly the fly in the ointment in North Carolina politics. A group of citizens, maybe a couple dozen, have filed a complaint saying that because he was involved in the January 6th, 2021 insurrection, or Facebook meetup, however you want to talk about it, that he was a part of this insurrection, he has essentially disqualified himself from being able to run for Congress because our United States Constitution, there was an amendment put in, I think it was the 14th Amendment, pertaining to insurrections after the Civil War where the federal government was going to keep Confederate sympathizers from running for Congress, they are, they are using this to try to keep him from running for Congress. Now, we should point out, congressional seats are not set yet because they are rolled into this lawsuit that we just heard about, we just talked about. But in response to this, Congressman Cawthorn has countersued and he is trying to block their lawsuit for moving forward. What was interesting I saw on Twitter was that in those pleadings, it did indicate 
hey, I don't know, I may run in this district, I may run in a different district. And the way that's set up, the state board has to appoint a panel of county board members to make a decision and have a hearing on whether or not he should be able to run. And that's what you found so interesting. I don't think that's something that we knew about. So the lawsuit that Cawthorn, Congressman Cawthorn has filed, uh, he filed this past Monday in federal court. And, you know, he's essentially saying that they're violating his right to run for political office and his free speech rights. You know, whatever your feelings are about Congressman Cawthorn, positive, negative, uh, and I find there are very few that are in between. This guy, this freshman, I might add, continues to make news. Not Drive a news cycle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not only here in North Carolina politics, but around the country. So we have been trying to get Senator Ballard on the podcast for a while now. Mm-hmm. She's been very, very busy writing the budget. She said, I would love to come on the podcast, but I can't do it until after the budget's done. Of course, the budget wrapped up in November, and then she went right back up that mountain to take care of work in the district. So we got to sit down with her, and I think that going into this interview, I had the impression that she had a job at the U.S. Department of Education, kind of sitting in a cubicle working on policy, but that is not at all the case as to her federal experience. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Senator Deanna Ballard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to, great to be with you guys this morning. To start us off, tell us about your district. Where is your district? Why do you think your district is special? Have you been to my district? Oh, yeah. It's pretty obvious why it's special. Yeah. Uh, right now we're special because we have a lot of snow on the ground. <laughs> um, I actually just had about 16 inches, 14 to 16 inches at my house earlier in January, and then I guess it's been snowing all weekend. But I have five counties up in northwest North Carolina, so Watauga, Ash, Allegheny, uh, Surrey, and Wilkes counties. But previously, I have also served Avery and Caldwell County, so definitely have um, a bit of a, a lay of the land up in the, the mountain area and a lot of geography to cover. Um, and, you know, there's no one straight away right. <laughs> in the mountains to get anywhere from one end of the district to the other. Have so, you lived there your whole life? I have not. Um, so I lived, I grew up, born and raised in Lincoln County. So uh, that's home for me. Family's still there. Mom and dad live in the same house I was raised in, born in, and just surrounded a lot of farmland and a lot of... Um, my cousins and grandparents, so very, very strong community of family um, where I was born and raised and still to this day, um, solid friendships from all, even all my kids, uh, friends that grew up with in elementary school. So it's been really a blessing um, to kind of have that as, as kind of some foundations for my life. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, that's born and, and then I lived in, I went to school in Nashville, Tennessee. Went to Belmont University um, in Tennessee, about 410 miles away from home. Did the one thing my dad told me not to do, which was uh, go out of state in private. Okay. So, 
<laughs> I did do that, you know. Uh, but I was the first one in my family, actually, to go to a four-year college. So, right. so I was very tickled um, to really have that opportunity. And then lived in D.C. also for about seven and a half years. But I've been in Watauga County now for almost 12, or over 12, almost 13 years. So what brought you to the area initially? How did, how did you end up in that greater Boone area? Well, I had been living in D.C. I worked with the George W. Bush administration, and my last day in the White House was their last day in the White House in 09. So I was unemployed. And at the time, that was also during the financial crisis, and job market was horrible, too. So uh, timing was not even great for a lot of us political appointees. I had been asked to consider moving to Texas and going to Texas, but... With the Bushes? Yeah, but not really interested in... You know, uh, I was ready to come home. I was ready to kind of come back to North Carolina. Um, Not ready to stay in D.C. either. I didn't want to consider to be a lifer necessarily. I'd already been there seven years, and some some people might, you know, would say that that was already (laughs) happening. But I was ready to come home and um, really kind of pursue opportunities here. So it's so funny. I actually... I actually tell young kids this and high school students and even college students. I was like, you know, at the age of 30, um, I was working in the White House and, you know, one day and then the next day I'm moving back into mom and dad's house. (laughs) 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 So it was, uh, it's it's great. You never know what can take shape, but I definitely wanted to come home, kind of decompress. I needed some time off. you know, working in the White House and the administration is very uh, intense. Yeah. And your schedule is just really all over the map and a lot of all-nighters and a lot of travel. So I was ready to kind of come home and kind of, you know, hopefully, you know, plant some, plant my feet on the ground a little bit, get some roots. And um, lo and behold, I mean, literally, I'd been praying about a job and some opportunity and professional growth. I'd been talking to NASCAR and a few other organizations and corporations in Charlotte area, but got um, a call from Franklin Graham's office um, who kind of threw a friend of a friend and had heard of my skill set and willingness, um, you know, to kind of come up and meet. And so sure enough, went up and had lunch with him and had had a series of meetings and started working at Samaritan's Purse. So that's really kind of what drew me up to Boone. Um, I was I mean, I grew up going to Boone and to the mountains, yeah. so I knew the area. I know the area. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again, I was coming from D.C., so it's really funny. It was a little bit of a whiplash, you know, going from the city and uh, tons of just conveniences nearby and just many activities to do and um, to a smaller town that's just very entrenched in a lot of family. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of generation after generation of folks. So tend to be a little skeptical of new people, but here I am. I want them over. I'm, you know, representing them. So I think that's pretty impressive. And when you say you worked in the White House, you actually had an office in the White House. Can you talk about that and what you did in the Bush administration? Sure. Um, So I was in the administration for seven and a half years. I started kind of, I tell, again, when I'm spending time with with students and folks, uh, I really like to share that I started as a volunteer. Um, President Bush had been to Charlotte in 02. uh, I volunteered at the event with the advance team and with the press pool specifically. So I was working with the press and um, the staff ended up like at the end of the trip uh, was basically like, hey, you know, you did a great job. Would you be interested in doing anything more? And I said, oh, sure. Not thinking anything about it. Like, (laughs) Two weeks later, got a call at my house, at my parents' house, um, and they were looking for me. 
And it was from the vice president's office, okay. vice president Cheney's office. And so they were looking for folks to go to and do a trip to Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was a political event. So they were looking for kind of volunteers, folks that are not, you know, government employees, political appointees. Um, so I, I went and then next thing you know, it just kind of turned into to one thing after another. Um, so that turned into a full-time job administration um, with the Department of Education uh, with Secretary Rod Page. Was on the president's campaign in 04, was at Homeland Security with Secretary Chertoff um, during Katrina, um, and then also was then in the White House for the last four and a half years. But throughout that time, uh, the White House has a tendency to, to poach folks from the agencies and use them for travel, for presidential travel. So I had been traveling for the president and the first lady, um, doing various trips from 02 on, I believe, well, 03 was when I started traveling. My first international trip was to the NATO summit in wow. Istanbul, Turkey with wow. him. So On Air Force One? No, I did the advance on that one. Okay. Advance. So that okay. was how you start. Okay. And then, um, so I tell folks, like, I literally, I started as a volunteer and then ended seven and a half years later as a commissioned officer, you know, in the White House under President Bush, having traveled the world, traveled to over 60-some countries, uh, lots of times, yes, on Air Force One, too. Um, and then, you know, a commissioned officer is really a very special commission that the president and Secretary Rice at the time really bestow upon you. And it um, is equivalent to a two-star general, and I have it for life. Yeah. And yeah. so you, you're the honorable at the age, I mean, as the honorable age of, what, 28? Yeah. Um, and so it was really um, a true, I guess, you know, uh, testament to just the amount of work and the, the yeah. amount of hard work and the amount of trust and then level of influence and authority also that you have in the president's year or the first yeah. lady's year or national security agency. I mean, yeah. you're working together with all of these, these, your counterparts. Yeah. So. so out of what you just said, I have like 16 questions. Me too. I, <laughs> me too. I'm like trying to narrow it down. Podcast is going long this week. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Let's start at the beginning. How did you decide to be a volunteer? Was your family engaged in politics or how did you get engaged in politics? Good question. Uh, so when I did that thing, you know, my dad told me what to do. <laughs> right. um, I actually, when I went to college, I met a dear friend. Um, we were college roommates um, throughout my time there and in Nashville. But her dad ran for Congress our freshman year um, in college. And she's from South Carolina. Uh, it was Congressman Jim DeMint at the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we would volunteer. And so we did. We went, I went home with her in Greenville, South Carolina, and we'd volunteer. Um, standing on the side of the road, making calls. I mean, you name it. Yeah. And very just, it was fun. And I guess you could say, not. I got bit by the bug a little bit. And mm -hmm. not even really realizing it at the mm -hmm. time. And then as we went on. But when I volunteered, um, she was working in D.C. too. And so she was just kind of like, hey, you know, presidents come to town. Do you want to volunteer? And literally it's been about, you know, uh, opportunities and who you surround yourself with and friends who just really look out and want to offer these incredible chances for folks to be a part of something, you know, really big and really special. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I literally just <laughs> my parents <laughs> and family did not. We were not raised in a very mm -hmm. politically active home mm -hmm. um, in the community at all. I mean. It was, uh, so it was just a really, I guess, as I, in my college years and in my young professional career, you know, just sort of kind of dialed in a bit more and got more engaged and more involved. 
while you were serving in the federal government, what was the one job that you had that you were like, now you look back on and you're, you think to yourself, like, that was really amazing that this happened to Mm -hmm. me. And this job was more spectacular than I thought maybe at the time. Oh, sure. I mean, I often look back and think, oh my gosh, I peaked at 30. (laughs) Like, what am I going to do now? (laughs) I did. When I left DC, I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? How am I even going to translate this? And my experiences into, you know, the private sector or, you know, mm-hmm. continued work in the public sector or what? Working in the White House and working with so directly with the First Lady and the President. I mean, you're briefing the President sometimes at the top of the stairs of the plane before he goes wow. to the bottom of the stairs and is meeting the ambassador or, you know, the prime minister or the foreign minister. Um, so you better know your stuff. And you can't be easily rattled. So he loved to sort of like poke you a little bit and try to get you off the game, which is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're very genuine and like good hearted folks, too. Um, and just like to sort of, you know, uh, zing you a little bit every mm-hmm. once in a while just to throw you off. But yeah, even before he's going on stage somewhere, I mean, you can be backstage in the offstage announce area, as we call it, and you're briefing him and you're like, oh my gosh, are you even listening to me, right? Because <laughs> you're talking so fast. And he is. He gets it. I mean, he was very just um, astute and really, really, you know, knows that we're not going to do anything to really set him up to look like, you know, a fool in front of people or in right. front of the media. Uh, I would say negotiating with um, uh, when we traveled and did international travel. I mean, I would go on pre-advances and then come back and then go on the actual trip with the president and the first lady, too. So on the pre-advances, about a month out, you go and you're negotiating with the host country, essentially, on what deliverables you're really going to, like, you know, what's going to be the takeaway from the trip? What are we here to announce? Or what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Like, what do we want to do? So it was pretty powerful to be able to sit at the table. And, I mean, I could be sitting across from, like, Putin's chief of staff, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Or, um, I mean, in any country, Africa. I mean, when we were in Africa and Ghana and... They even invite you into their homes sometimes just to have those even initial meetings as a way to build relationships and build re- good rapport over the next three or four weeks as we go in and really sort of, you know, set up our visit and work on um, policy. I mean, I was engaged a lot even in policy work to communications, mm-hmm. um, to a lot of uh, even the briefing materials, just because at the end of the day, everything was kind of falling in my lap. Um I'm at the end of the day responsible for, you know, how the day is really going to be executed and whether we've accomplished what we really set out to do. So I had to work a lot with National Security Council in vetting different policies and you were always sniffing out the money trail, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which has come in handy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That is a skill set that has come out, uh, come in handy, but even navigating the money trail across, you know, governments, across NGOs, but really USG dollars and where where they are, how they get moved through agencies, different fund codes. Um, I mean, this was all happening at, you know, my level and, Mm -hmm. and then being prepared to sort of put the president in front of something that, you know, is really touting and funding like taxpayer U.S. dollars, whether it's international or even domestic. So I did a lot of domestic travel too. So let's talk about your transition from the White House into North Carolina politics. President Bush leaves office January 2009. You come back home. You work at Samaritan's Purse. Can you talk about going from federal 
uh, policy to wanting to be in the General Assembly. Sure. Um, as we've established, I was not politically <laughs> active in North Carolina. Um, and my family, or I mean, even myself growing up. Uh, so I, I really got asked to consider running. I think folks had sort of planted the idea a couple of years after I'd moved home, but it wasn't anything. I never wanted to be out front. I'm the quarterback. I make things happen. I know how to get crap done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. I know how to get something accomplished yeah. and get something through and how to navigate the channels and know how to bring folks together to have the conversation to, to, to get to some real results and solutions. Um, not one to want to really be the front face and to want to, um, yeah, I mean, put myself out there. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of a private person, uh, right. believe it or not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's really, uh, it was challenging for me, I guess, uh, in that regard. I had uh, been working at Samaritan's Purse at the time, um, just really got asked to consider yeah. running from folks in the community. Mm -hmm. um, and... So the opportunity presented itself, really. And then at the same time, this is kind of funny too, but at the same time, uh, I don't know if folks are familiar, but Franklin Graham was doing the Decision America tour in 2016. I'm yeah. really encouraging citizens to get involved, uh, to, to, to pray, to vote, but get engaged. And even if that means run for local office or run for office. And so we've been planning all of that in 2015, leading up to 2016. And so all of this sort of happened kind of at that same time <laughs> where I basically had to go to my boss and be like, uh, so I really, you know, ask you to pray about this because I really feel like I'm, I'm supposed to do this and convicted about this. So I had a conversation with him and I mean, sure enough, I decided to file, really prayed about it. I mean, I really do feel like it was something that was um, stretching me, growing me professionally and personally and wanted to really seize the opportunity. So I kind of took a, I mean, really took a step of faith and I do believe in my heart of hearts that, you know, when you're involved in running for, I think it really has to be a calling, you know, I mean, cause it's a lot of hard work. Um, you're not always well compensated mm -hmm. <laughs> financially. Uh, so I really believe in, um, you know, the heart of that and the heart of the calling. So I really wanted to serve and here I am at, at the state level, which is very different. I mean, state, States uh, uh, navigating the state channel is it's a beast in and of itself. Right. Um, so I, it's just a it's been a different experience. Uh, love learning. Love uh, kind of. I'm a lifelong learner, so mm. I really thrive. I think and get a lot of satisfaction when I'm learning something new, when I'm challenged, um, when I can really just embrace you know projects or issues and really figure out a way to make it better or make them better. And, you know, the work I do at the education, on the education space, or in the education space, is really important. We're talking about 56% of our budget sure. goes into K-12, community college, and university. And that's under your purview as the co-chair of the education committee. Huge task. It is. <laughs> it is big. But I have to say, I have a great team. Um, we great team at the General Assembly, but also across the education sectors. Um, I mean, it's not like we sit there and just write down a number on a piece of paper right. and think that that's what they need or that that's directed. We get a lot of buy-in and folks who know me and know me well know I have no problem asking for folks input and their recommendations and um, 
you know, suggestions, but it's not something that, you know, I take very lightly at all in terms of what we're doing and how, you know, prioritizing dollars. The, the crux of the issue, the hardest part for me in this is, and you want to talk about some differences. So when I worked in DC, I had a lot of, um, I had a lot of say in what was developing and kind of what we were delivering, but then also a lot of power in the execution and the implementation of certain things. So here, the buck sort of stops a little bit sometimes at you know developing the idea or the legalese and the language to sort of figure out you know how to really kind of get it down the track that you want it to be going down. Um, and then, you know, you have agencies that sort of really implement the work. And so sometimes it gets a really funny, like, you know, the intent versus <laughs> making sure all that's clear right. and then, well, you know, sort of explained or communicated. So it's, I would say sometimes it's hard for me to sort of not be a part of always the, that, that deliverable at the end of the day and the final project, even though I know I am. Yeah. And, you know, at the root of it yeah. even and set the foundation for it. What would you say is your favorite part about operating at the state level? Oh, I love, um, and this was true for me and my role, and maybe it's because it's the executive branch, but I, I think at this level we're able to actually, you're actually able to get something done in a swift, some doesn't always feel very swift, but in a swifter way than you can at the federal level. Let's mm -hmm. say in Congress, I mean, you work on a issue for six years, I feel like. Sometimes mm -hmm. it just takes so much time. Um, whereas here, I mean, like, you know, in fact, a year ago, actually, you know, I, a year ago yesterday, I filed a bill to reopen schools mm -hmm. and um, it was the first bill that got vetoed. But what that did was like spur on conversation and negotiations in order to get something done by basically the beginning of March. So got our kids back in. So I can't, I just feel like there's a lot of satisfaction in being able to get things done um, a little bit more quickly than what it can happen on the federal space. Not to say that we still don't have more room for improvement and moving a little quicker. Do you ever step back and think like, wow, I've had such an impact here. You see something coming to life that you created and you're like, I did this. I mean, I'll say since I just brought it up, but getting those kids, getting our kids yeah. back into school, wow. That was really, really special. And it all started because I even went to Senator Berger and was like, hey, I have an idea. Mm -hmm. Be careful when you do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. And so I was able to kind of really wrap my arms. And I, that was really, really special because I just know that families and even teachers had been reaching out in that particular case, wanting to get back in the classroom and wanting kids back in the classroom. So um, that was pretty special. Um not I, to mention the mental health impacts right. of yeah. kids being at home, yeah. Yeah. abuse. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the higher ed space. I mean, yeah. so mm -hmm. important, too. So it's, it's been really great to, yeah, to, to really lead the effort in that area, for sure. Can you talk a little bit about what your schedule is like oh, as wow. a part-time senator? Are you sure you want to know? Are yeah, I give us a peek. Oh, the schedule. So, you know, I live three and a half hours away. So mm -hmm. I'm not as, you know, even close by as other folks who can kind of make a day trip. Mm -hmm. So when I schedule, I kind of have to think through that, um, my timing and my week and, and what that looks like. I, no day is the same. I mean, I think that's probably everyone would tell you that it's true. Mm -hmm. um, but even yesterday, I mean, I'm, I'm rolling into town. I had a dinner 
um, with some education partners in Charlotte Monday night, and then you know roll into town Tuesday morning, have three and a half hours of committee meetings yesterday, um, and then had a dinner last night with another education partner. Um, and then today have some back-to-back meetings um, and, and you know, returning phone calls. And you have a lot of constituent casework as well. Uh, so sometimes I'm able to do my other work and um, kind of in the evening hours or during the day, if I get up, I mean, early enough and can mm-hmm. get some, stack, tackle the day um, out of the gate a little bit. So it's, it's tough. Um, and then you're, I mean, I'm on six interim committees i think right now i think i'm on over a dozen or so you know regular committees um and then you chair i'm chairing three committees so it's it's a there's a lot to kind of keep up with and we only have one staff you know i have a legislative assistant and she's fantastic um but it's not like we have a team of people in the district that can help me with constituent casework either so i do spend time on the phone talking with them and um you know hearing their concerns and then you know then there's follow-up work to do would you ever consider running for higher office oh i've been asked Mm -hmm. (laughs) already uh so yeah well i mean we'll kind of have to see how that happens um as you know i'm not getting any younger (laughs) (laughs) you might be the most qualified Uh, person for president we've uh, met (laughs) really that's so true so uh yeah i mean we'll see what happens i mean you know we're in the middle of Everything's dynamic in North Carolina. You never know what can happen. So we'll yeah. see. I can okay. see a lot of spots for you. My mind's, <laughs> yeah, I see it. That's my problem. Everyone has plans for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what my plans are, though. Yeah. I would like to make, you know, I'm, I am not married and, you know, no kids. And so I really would like to make some money and take care of myself yeah. and my parents and my family and uh, be a part of that. But I mean, it, it's all wonderful and I, I'm blessed. I've been very, very blessed to have the opportunities I have in my career thus far over 20 years of working. So I'm getting old. Well, I wouldn't <laughs> say that. You are you are young and we're very fortunate to have your talents here at the state level. So if you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in our politics today, what would the one thing be? If folks were to um, be more open and sort of less, I guess, judgmental out of the gate on, you know, differing points of view and less presumptuous about someone's intentions or motives um, and being just really open, I, I encourage folks in our communities to do that, even in my district, because yeah. I think sometimes I'm, I feel like I do mediate a lot. Um, I come in and kind of try to thread the needle and get folks to really talk openly but respectfully Mm -hmm. um, to get to some effective, you know, conclusions. And I think that can happen, and I think we can do that. But I think we have to be honest and and really um, straightforward uh, in kind of what we're doing Mm -hmm. and and what we can do together. And, I mean, it sounds so Pollyannish, but, I mean, it's really not. I mean, I've been able to get stuff done this way. And so I just, I guess, knowing that no matter your age or whatever your political party is, you know, don't bully each other, you know, and you kind of run into that a little bit more. I feel like I run into that a little bit more at the state level than even I did at the federal level. Education policy, especially, right? They're here in Raleigh with their interest groups that if you make any change to education, any change that disrupts the apple cart, 
the narrative is you're destroying public education. That has, I, I've heard this, seen it, experienced it. It's frustrating, right? That you're. Sure, but you can't let. I mean, I know at the end of the day in my heart, like what I'm doing mm-hmm. and, and, and the good work that I'm doing, what I'm trying to accomplish in terms of supporting our students and the future workforce of North Carolina. So, I mean, there are times where you just can't let everything, you can't take so much to heart in terms of just, because you get hit all the time. I mean, I get bruised and hit and like, beat up like mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, so it's just really trying, you know, to be smart about what to sort of take in, what to sort of just blow off, you know, your shoulders and just keep rolling on doing what you know is right to do and what's good to do. Well, Senator Deanna Ballard, we appreciate everything you do for the state, everything you do for the students of North Carolina. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. What interesting experiences she had before the age of 30 years old. Yeah, it's really mind-blowing to think about. She's so young and accomplished. When we go and visit her, you know, we we tell our clients, you better get to the point. She's going to ask you a lot of questions and just pick up on some cues of when we need to leave because she works so quickly. I really think this has a lot to do with just that pace that she had at the federal level. So I asked her in the podcast if she was going to run for higher office. Just as we sat here with her, I'm like, dang, she is qualified. And she didn't say no. She didn't. (laughs) She had a little grin when you asked. I mean, I could see her in a lot of places. Congress, certainly. I think that's bottom rung for her. U.S. Senate, cabinet position, even higher. She really is a talented legislator. I could see her going very far. Tweet Tweet of of the week. week. This week's tweet of the week, we have to hand it to our friend, Virginia Reed, at Virginia underscore Reed, who is the legislative assistant for Joe John. And as you call her. (laughs) VA says, get that vax. That's her Twitter handle, right? Yeah. So as Everyone is aware, even if you're not involved in sports, Tom Brady decided that he was going to retire from the NFL, greatest of all time, Absolutely, to play the game. And there was some discussion this weekend that it was announced, ESPN was reporting it, and then Tom Brady's dad said, he hasn't made this decision. And then the buck said he called us an hour ago and said he hadn't made the decision either. So it's kind of retracted. And I think that was on Saturday night. And then by Monday morning, he officially made that decision for himself and announced it. So Virginia's tweet said, okay, I'll bite. Who's Tom Brady? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was well-timed. Well done. Virginia Reed has great Twitter posts, by the way, and a lot of it's about her dog, Toby, who today is getting a shampoo, it seems, if you follow her <laughs> on uh, 
on Twitter. I, I have one question about the whole Tom Brady decision okay. to retire. Has anyone checked on Representative John Hardister? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you follow also Representative John Hardister, he loves Tom Brady. I mean, I'm not a fan of Tom Brady as far as I root for him. In fact, I root against him. I'm, I, you know, I'm a Steelers, Panthers fan. The Patriots beat our Panthers a few years back in the Super Bowl. Uh, so no love loss there, but you have to acknowledge he's the greatest of all time. Who are you pulling for in the Super Bowl? I'm going for the Bengals. Me too. Underdog Bengals. You know, I Like I said, I'm a Steelers fan, so they play in the same conference, and I, I get all that. But it's I'm also a lifelong Cubs fan, so I know what it's like to just starve for that World Series or that national title. And so the Bengals, I remember the Bengals of my youth, Ken Anderson, I believe was quarterback. Chris Collinsworth, who is now a commentator on ABC. No, he's on the NBC broadcast. Chris Collinsworth was a great wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals, but they just didn't have the team to put it all together. So, yeah, I'm happy to see... Uh, the Bengals in it, and I'm pulling for them. And I usually pull for the AFC. I should say my story for why I'm pulling for them is different. Okay. That when I was in high school, I used to drive, well, I drove this like purple Saturn station wagon to school. And one day I saw this kid just walking on the side of the road. And so I called, or I rolled down the window. I was like, do you need a ride? And he had this huge Bengals coat on and I had never met a Cincinnati Bengals fan. Right. And from that point forward, he rode to school with me every day. And the kid was just a diehard fan. And I thought it was so sweet. That is cool. That is cool. There is an Illinois game on on Saturday. We will take any bandwagon fans. Mm. So if you want to join us, we're first in the Big Ten. Come on board. Who do you play on Saturday? I think we play Indiana. Right. We played Wisconsin last night and won. And apparently there was like a foot of snow outside of State Farm Center, which is our arena. And people still showed up anyway. And I saw a tweet that like it took hours and hours to get to the game for folks just to get from a few miles away because the snow and ice was so bad. Okay. Well, maybe I'll tune into the game Saturday because I'm waiting for the Super Bowl. As always, thanks for listening to the Do Politics Better podcast. We would love it if you would subscribe to us and leave any reviews. It helps people find the podcast better. We hope you enjoy the nicer weather this weekend. Do something outside, hang out with family and friends. And while you're doing that, remember to do politics better. This episode is brought to you by LaCroix. Brian has been drinking LaCroix. At an extremely high rate. Yeah, looking at you, LaCroix, we'll take. <laughs> and it's expensive. I buy them these $5. I, it's expensive. It is. What if we opened up every podcast with me opening up a LaCroix? <laughs> this episode. That would be uh, cool. Brought to you by LaCroix. <laughs>